Welcome to episode 24 of the Unsunday Show with me, your host, Mike Adams. Let's get this show started. Hey friends, thank you indeed for joining me on this episode today of the Unsunday Show, episode 24. You know, I made some changes on the show here as far as where I'm hosting the audio, and I think it's going to be a better experience for me. You won't even notice anything, hopefully, but for me, it's going to be a little bit easier, a little bit better experience. And so I've been, some of my time's been taken doing that. The rest of the time away has just been living life. Sometimes, you know, life happens with or without you, and it's been happening with me. So I've been involved in it and kind of away from the microphone for a while. But hey, as I get things restarted here and talk to you today, I want to go back a little bit and talk about things that you already know. I was recently reminded of the whole pastor-centered church, the whole pastor-centric institutional church that we have today, and just in conversations with different people, how that is assumed. That is just assumed to be a valid thing. It's assumed really to be something that God himself has implemented and that there's this top-down authority in the ecclesia where the pastor is in charge. But you know, when we open the pages of the New Testament, we see something completely different, don't we? We don't see we don't see pastors in charge. We see that all authority has been given to Jesus. And I don't think he's really sharing that authority with anyone else. And we also see that the apostles had authority as apostles. But when it comes to the pastor centrality of the church that we see today in our culture, it just isn't there. It isn't happening. But we're so used to it that we think that it's something that originated with God himself, originated in Scripture. And so we think, well, this must be it, and we don't really question it. And so we end up with some pretty goofy ideas and some pretty strange things, uh, strange ideas about, you know, how this whole thing operates within the church. But like I said a minute ago, when we open the pages of the New Testament, we really don't see that. And so I'm going to ask the question in this episode, you know, who put pastors in charge? How did that happen? And again, if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you already know the answer. But as we restart here and kind of um, come to the end of the break that I've been on and get things going again, I want to go back and revisit that before we go any further, because I want to make sure that we remember that. It's interesting that the, the ones, you know, any, any casual reading, I guess we could say, any casual reading of church history will drive us to the conclusion that the ones who put pastors in charge were other pastors. You know, remember the New Testament uses pastor, elder, uh, bishop as uh, synonymous terms to just describe different functions of the same person. And probably the most common word used in the New Testament is elder. But, you know, there are bishops, which is episkopos in the Greek, and uh, there's one mention of the pastor in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's the Greek word poimen, and, you know, can be translated shepherd as well. But that one instance of that word that occurs in Ephesians chapter 4, we've institutionalized that, and we've made that person the CEO. We've made that person central. And again, this isn't new information for you. I'm rehashing old stuff that you're already that you're already aware of. And so in this episode, I just want to remind you, I want to ask ourselves, how did this happen? Where did this come from? You know, you'll remember that way back in 
the early second century, this guy named Ignatius of Antioch made a uh, crazy statement concerning pastors, concerning bishops, concerning elders. When he said this, quote, follow your bishop as Jesus Christ followed the Father. Let no one do anything in the church apart from the bishop. Holy communion is valid when separated, when celebrated by the bishop or someone the bishop authorizes, end of quote. You know, in that quote, I mean, it's so telling. We see here how that Ignatius, in, a, in his attempt to uh, squelch a lot of church division that was going on, instituted or suggested, rather, this hierarchy of uh, top-down authority within the ecclesia in order to, really, his motive, I think, was, it seems to be, from what I've read, was mainly to squelch divisions that were taking place within the ecclesia. And so he thought, well, if we get this structured organization in here, it'll, it'll somehow help. It'll make it function better, and it will take care of some of these divisions. And so he said, follow your bishop or your pastor or your elder, you know, all, all three of those are synonymous, as Jesus Christ followed the Father. That's a pretty powerful statement. And to let no one do anything in the church apart from the pastor, apart from the bishop. And then, of course, by this time, the Lord's Supper was becoming institutionalized, at least in Ignatius's uh, thinking. And he said, Holy Communion is valid uh, when celebrated by the bishop or someone the bishop authorizes. And so it started way back there. It didn't start in the New Testament. It started uh, early second century was the first suggestion of, of this idea that the pastor's in charge and that we can't function without the pastor there, or we shouldn't be functioning without the pastor there. But it's interesting that on the day of Pentecost, again, no one was looking for the pastor. And going back further, we don't see this concept again in the New Testament anywhere. And so it really started there. And by, you know, we've talked about before how that by about uh, the middle of the third century, about 250 AD, somewhere around there, that this idea of the one pastor in charge was pretty much firmly entrenched in most of the ecclesias, most of the assemblies at that time or by that time. And then if we fast forward to the time of the Reformation, we see it reiterated there again, don't we? And specifically with, uh, with Luther, because Martin Luther, you know, not unlike Ignatius, he held a, what I believe is a crippling view that only the specially trained ordained ministers were qualified to, to preach the gospel, to baptize, and to administer the Lord's Supper, which again had become, as you know, by the time of the Reformation, had become a sacrament instead of a love feast, instead of a sit-down meal together. Luther felt that to veer from this and allow the unordained people, the unordained laity, as they're, as they're called, uh, to do things would result in a, quote, perversion of public order, end of quote. And it would, as he put it, undermine respect for authority and lead to, again, a, quote, deplorable confusion. And that's from a book called The Theology of Martin Luther, uh, 1966, published in 1966, um, on page 323. Luther was so opposed to the idea of someone other than the professional clergy speaking in the assembly that he referred to it as coming from the, quote, pit of hell, and that those who were guilty of it should be put to death. And again, that's that same book uh, by Paul Altheus, The Theology of Martin Luther, page 323. And then concerning the professional uh, clergy, which of course we've talked about a lot, the clergy-laity distinction, but concerning the professional clergy, Luther also noted, quote, it is a wonderful thing that the mouth of every pastor is the mouth of Christ. 
Therefore, you ought to listen to the pastor, not as a man, but as God. End of quote. And again, that's that same book, but it's on page 326. He then went on to add this little statement, quote, The ears are the only organs of a Christian. End of quote. In other words, we're just to listen to what the professional pastor has to say. We're not to uh, question it. We're not to interact with it. We're just to sit there and listen and do everything that he says because he's speaking in the place of Christ and his mouth is like the mouth of Christ. And so we're to submit to everything that he says. Again, this is at the time of the Reformation. This is Martin Luther. I know Luther said some really cool things and I appreciate those, but he also had his blind spots. And so let's not lose track of that. Let's not lose sight of the fact that These men in the Reformation were just like you and I. I have my blind spots, and you have your blind spots, and so did they. John Calvin also added this. He said, quote, The pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth in a greater way than the sun, food, and drink are necessary to nourish and sustain the present life, end of quote. In other words, we can't survive without the pastor. We can't survive without this pastoral office, and it's become by then a professional office. Of course, it was a paid, it was a paid uh, position within the institution, and it still is. But again, that concept is foreign to the New Testament. It's been handed to us by these people that I'm quoting, and and many many others uh, in church history. This is religious tradition that has given this given us this idea that there's a pastor who has to be in charge, and we're incomplete without this person. And I understand that talking about this kind of stirs up suspicion a little bit, especially from those who are deeply entrenched in it. You know, I think this whole clergy lady idea, this whole uh, ordained pastor, professional pastor concept is so deeply rooted in our traditions and in our spiritual heritage that it's really no wonder that talking about it stirs up so much anger and stirs up suspicion among those uh, who are in charge, who want to be in charge and want to remain in charge. I mean, let's be honest here, we're messing with a sacred cow, and those that are most deeply immersed in this system have the most to lose simply because it's directly tied to their income. It's tied to their power. It's tied to their status. It was tied to mine when I was a pastor. When I was a pastor in a in a formal institutional church setting, I had power. I had status. And I would never have given that up had I not crashed and burned out of performance-based Christianity and began to see it from a different point of view. I can tell you this, it's a, it's a scary place and it's a, it's a very vulnerable place to find yourself in this discussion. But I think we have a choice to make. You know, I can honestly say that if there's anything that church history and tradition can teach us regarding the whole clergy lady system and the, the, the pastor in power idea, it's that the entire structure The entire structure itself is built upon power and money, where money flows up and power flows down. And those in the power positions are the beneficiaries and guardians of the system. And so pastors have put pastors in charge throughout church history. That's where it came from. You remember that in in previous episodes on the Sun Sunday show that I've mentioned to you Upton Sinclair's quote, and I I think it's apropos, I think it fits. Upton Sinclair said this, quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it, end of quote. And I think that applies. There's a certain sense in which ignorance really is bliss. And at times, it's intentional as well. And I think this is one of those instances. 
But when it comes to the body of Christ, when it comes to the ecclesia, to the assembly that Jesus is building in this world, he's the head. You remember Paul told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18? He told them this. He said, and he, talking about Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. My translation says, but it's really ecclesia. He is the head of the body, the ecclesia. He's the beginning and firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, that's Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. I'm reminded of a person that uh, John, the Apostle John, wrote about in the little tiny letter of 3 John toward the end of your New Testament. You know, we've got the Gospel of John at the beginning of the New Testament, and then we've got the three little Johns toward the back of the New Testament, just before Revelation. And in 3 John, that, that book that's uh, just a book or so before the book of Revelation, he said this in verse 9. He said, and it's only one chapter, he said in verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Again, that's Third John, verses 9 and 10. And so we have an example there of this fellow named Diotrephes, and we don't know exactly what was going on there, but he liked to have the preeminence. When it says he liked to put himself first, it's a very closely related word to the word Paul used in Colossians 1.18 when he said Jesus you know, has to be preeminent, or Jesus is preeminent within the body. Well, here's Diotrephes who's seeking to be preeminent within the body. He's seeking to usurp some kind of a position within the body that makes him central. He wanted to be first. And John said, well, when we come, we're going to talk about this, we're going to expose him, and we're going to settle this matter, because he's kind of running through the the assemblies there, uh, kind of like a bull in a china cabinet, and causing all kinds of damage, and putting people out of the church who are busy welcoming other people into the church. And John says, this can't be, this can't happen. But that's a kind of a negative example, I guess, of someone who wants to have the preeminence within the ecclesia. Because the preeminence belongs to Jesus alone, doesn't it? It doesn't belong to any of us. It belongs to him alone. And when we open the pages of the New Testament, that's what we see. We don't see a pastor-centric church. We don't see a, a human-centered church. We don't see that. We see a church, we see an ecclesia that has one head, and that Jesus is leading his church by his Holy Spirit, because it's a life in Christ that leads us. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, that leads us and that makes the difference. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew, and I think I'll close here, I think it was the mother of James and John who came to Jesus and said, look, can, can you have my, my sons, one on your right hand and one on your left hand, in the kingdom? And, of course, the other disciples heard that and got upset about it, and, you know, there was some dissension going on. And then Jesus called them all to him, and he said this. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. But there's our example. You see, there isn't a top-down authority in Jesus' ecclesia. It's foreign to the ecclesia. 
It's foreign to the New Testament definition of the ecclesia. It isn't there. There isn't, there isn't lording over other people. There's facilitators, there are leaders, there are elders, there are pastors within the assembly, but it's not in a top-down authority sense that we see today. I think what we do is we're guilty of taking what we know in our culture and imposing it back on Scripture, wherever we can impose it. And we read it back into Scripture, and then we think, hey, we've got this set up, we've got this thing going here, and it's right, and there's nothing wrong with it, and we're so ingrained in it, we don't understand what we're doing. But every time that I hear a phrase about, you know, that, or rather a phrase that would lead me to think that there's a, you know, there's a pastor who's central, there's a pastor in charge, I have to admit I cringe a little. I cringe a little because I used to be a a pastor in charge, and I cringe a little because I see today, you know, news headlines, what's happening in this top-down authority thing that, you know, that whole top-down patriarchal structure, that whole top-down authority structure within most institutional church settings today is a breeding ground for abuse. It's a breeding ground for narcissistic abusers to kind of hide out in for a long time and never be exposed or not be exposed for years and years. I mean, look around us, look at the recent headlines. It's all over the place. And, you know, it's some of it's coming to light. And my concern is that, you know, this isn't the pattern that we see in the New Testament. It's not what we see in the ecclesia. And so I wanted to leave that thought with you today, just as I kind of kick off a, a fresh episode here. And I thank you for joining me. And remember, you can uh, listen to all my past episodes online at unsunday.com. They should also be available to you in any podcast app that you like to use. So please subscribe, listen in, and until next time, bye.